0: Here's one of my favorite things about doing this podcast. When I have a pet related problem, whether it's personal or clinical, instead of Googling, I just go, Hey, I know some smart people. Let's just do a podcast episode on it. And that's exactly what happened a while ago when I diagnosed a lymphoma case one weekend that presented me with a few questions. You know those questions that you've had for a long time and you've never been able to get a clear answer on it? Like, is it really like really, really not okay for me to start this sick lymphoma dog on Preds just for the weekend until she can see the oncologist next week when I know it's going to make her feel so much better between now and then. So I phoned Penny and I asked this and a bunch of other lymphoma questions that have been bothering me for a long time and we recorded this episode from those answers and it's gold. You might think you know lymphoma but I guarantee that there's some new stuff in here for you. But first, who's Penny. You'd have met Dr. Penny Thomas with us back in episode 44. Penny is the brands behind Veterinary Oncology Consultants, an oncology service that offers remote support for vets for those tricky cancer cases. We've got a link to a site for you in the show description. I recommend you save it. You'll need it at some point. We released this episode a while ago on our clinical podcast, but it's just too good not to share. So we're bringing the full recording to you with financial support from the SVS Pathology Network, which if you're an Australian listener, you'll know better as VetPath, ASAP Laboratory and QML Vetnostics, depending on where you work. The SVS Network has 35 dedicated veterinary pathologists whose beautiful brains and experience you have at your disposal to deliver your pathology results with the best turnaround times in Australia. Now, just a quick word about our clinical podcasts. I get a lot of questions along the lines of I can't find that episode that you mentioned on this or that condition. I've searched all over the Apple store and on Spotify, but I just can't see it. So just to clarify, we have a totally separate stream of podcasts called Vetveld Clinical, where we release three clinical episodes per week, backed by beautiful show notes, which I personally use all the time at work. You won't find the clinical podcasts on your normal podcast player if you are not subscribed. But once you subscribe at VVN. Dot supercast.com. that's vvn for vet Vault network we've got the link in the show description you can link those podcasts to your normal podcast player and it will start popping up on your feed so you can listen to it wherever you like listening to podcasts as you'll hear from this episode they really good it's a paid subscription but if you need a quick and easy way to stay up to date revise the stuff that you've long since forgotten since vet school and get clarification on the practical day-to-day questions that you don't necessarily learn in books then I can guarantee you that it's well worth it. That's not just my opinion, that's what our subscribers tell me every day. Okay, so let's get to it. Dr. Penny Thomas with everything you need to know about canine lymphoma. So this episode happened because I had a case of lymphoma or highly suspected lymphoma on a public holiday and I had a question. And to me, it's kind of like a straightforward cancer. You see, there's an old gold retriever, uh, 12, 13-year-old came in unwell for a couple of days, not eating. And once she walked in, she was skinny. And then I went to say hello to her and put her head in my hands to give her a cuddle and put my hands on those submandibular lymph nodes. and went, ah, oh. that sucks as well because you can know immediately what's wrong and the owner's still thinking, you know, she got something mild and you immediately go, yeah, that's cancer. My first question that... I always have this little bit of doubt. I feel that and I always go, yeah, that's lymphoma. And I'm talking about golf ball lymph nodes. I'm not talking about, oh, I think there's a mild lymphadenopathy. Uh, If you have that degree of lymphadenopathy all over the body, is there anything else realistically that it can be?
1: Look, in Australia, it's really, really unlikely to be something else. If we were in a different country, like if we were in America, potentially there are some infectious diseases that they have over there that can cause a peripheral lymphadenopathy. So if you are not in Australia, maybe you do need to sort of broaden your list of differentials a little bit more. But at least in Australia, if you've got big lymph nodes, both sides of the diaphragm in a dog, not just one lymph node or two lymph nodes, then I think, unfortunately, lymphoma is definitely very much up the top of your differential list for your patient, yeah.
2: So both sides of the diaphragm, meaning uh, pre-scaps, submandibulars, and then popliteals the and and things.
1: Exactly, so and yeah. back. Like- so it's not just like one mandibular and one pre-scap, but everything else is fine. It's you've got them sort of... At the head end and at the tail end of the dog that you can feel externally.
0: Cool. The infectious diseases um, you say not in Australia. We did an episode. I'll just put this in here in case mm. anybody hasn't listened on leishia, 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 and one of the potential presenting signs is a generalized lymphadenopathy, and that and that is it is in Australia now and the yeah. in the north and potentially coming down, heading down our way over time. Not quite lymphoma lymph nodes, like halfway there, so you 're not sure. getting these golf balls, but they are, it's a noticeable lymphadenopathy, so maybe worth keeping that in the back of your head in Australia as well
1: yeah, for sure
0: I'll jump in with the question that I contacted you about that day, uh, only because that's quite controversial, and even within the clinic, even after I spoke to you and I made the decision to treat with breads, I had a colleague, an experienced colleague say, "No, you can 't do that, so the question was. Dog's sick, it's not eating. It's a Friday. Now there's a whole weekend ahead, so I know nothing dramatic is going to happen over the next couple of days. I want her to feel better, but the owner was open to the idea of chemotherapy, of going the whole hog. But I need to get this dog to to eat and to feel better. Uh, and I know that Preds are probably going to make her feel better in the short term. So mm. I contacted Penny to say, can I put her on Preds and still mm. refer her? And what was your answer, Penny?
1: So the answer is there's no actually no agreed upon period of time that if you use prednisolone in a patient, you will induce resistance to chemotherapy because that's the concern. People have been told and sure, it does happen. If you've got a patient and it's been on pred, the likelihood of chemotherapy working might be lower, but we don't actually know what period of time that is like, is it one day? Probably not. Is it one week? Maybe, but it seems unlikely. Is it six months? Look, I think you're probably a bit more worried there. Mm. So there's no cutoff point. And certainly we might not ever find out what that is because it might be very patient specific. It might be one week in one patient and it might be two months in another. I'm usually really comfortable giving a suspected lymphoma patient prednisolone if we've collected enough samples from that patient and we're sure that those samples are going to be diagnostic. So I think that's probably the biggest thing is lots of fine needle aspirates. If you need to be collecting samples for something like flow cytometry, get all of that make sure that it's gonna be diagnostic because one of the hardest parts about diagnosing lymphoma in the clinic on cytology is these cells are super fragile. They love to just crush and, and you know splutter all across your slide. And then you get that comment back from the pathologist being like, this is non-diagnostic. So just make sure that when you're sampling these patients, you are doing it really gently. I never use suction when I'm FNAing these guys and spraying this out on the slide really gently spreading it really gently but check it Mm. go and have a look under the microscope you can usually tell are these cells intact or have i smeared things just right across the slide so as long as you've got enough diagnostic samples and you're about to send them away if your patient is sick absolutely you can give it steroids because like you just said Hubert, that could be the difference between it making it through the weekend Mm. or not and certainly if your patient is sick, prednisolone can be really helpful in really quickly getting them to feel better. If though your patient is 100% well, comes in wagging its tail, owners just found a lump and they're like, oh, what's this? Um, and not sick in any, in any way, maybe hold off. But if you're worried about your patient and you think PRED is going to help this patient, then absolutely you can give it as long as you've got enough samples to send away.
0: And what's your dose (laughs) of PRED? I'm going to jump in there. I know Gerardo has a question.
1: (laughs) Um, It's usually somewhere between one to one and a half milligrams per kilogramme we're not trying to immunocompromise these patients. It doesn't necessarily have to be higher than that. I am a fan of giving an injection of something like dexamethasone first and then starting them on oral pred. It really just depends how sick they are, right? Like if they're sick enough to be in hospital, then giving them something IV or subcut, absolutely you can. If they're not eating, sure, that might be the thing that gets them to start eating.
0: Is that a total daily dose or a... A split dose. Yeah,
1: that's a total daily dose.
0: Split in two or in one in one dose.
1: I don't mind. Okay, whatever's yeah. whatever's easier. Okay,
2: cool. And your Dex dose what would that be
1: something like 0.2 milligrams per kilogram as a one off?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. And Is that a twenty four hour thing for you, Dex, or is it or is twelve hour? Or...
1: Generally, for me, it's a twenty four hour thing.
2: The question I had was about FNAS because
1: hmm.
2: I always wonder. I I try to get a lot of samples, but is there like a, a number you go for? Like, and then, so is it, you send away six slides or is that actually six aspirates and 12 slides? And then what kind of needles do you use? And then when you're saying gently smear it, how do you yeah. gently smear That's something? Remember, you, exactly. you, you put it down and it kind of sucks onto each other. And it's yep. like this on attached to a rock that you're trying to pull apart.
1: So. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I'll start with the needle size. I'll usually use a 23. A, a, one of the light blue ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll usually attach that to a five mil syringe just because I like the size of that, but I'll pre-fill that with some air. So when I'm actually taking the sample, I've got my needle already attached to my syringe. It's already got air in it. And I'm generally trying to sample any big palpable lymph node other than the mandibulars just because I know that we can get a lot of um, reactive sort of cells there because of how close it is to mouth and there's often pathology there so prescapular and popliteal lymph nodes are probably my go-tos for sampling um, I'm not using any suction I'm using sort of a gentle motion and, and quite often you don't need to sedate these patients to do this so this is something that you can do like immediately after the consultation, when you've seen this dog with big lymph nodes, you can take it out the back and get the nurses to hold it and take some samples. I will try and aspirate at least two different lymph nodes and do that node at least twice. So all up at least four different sort of samples, but from each sort of aspirate sample, you might be able to get two or three good slides. The more, the merrier, definitely. In terms of how do we not crush all these cells into oblivion, um, I will gently aspirate with my pre-filled syringe and then I'll lay my slides at a 90-degree angle. So instead of just straight over the top of each other, I'll put one sort of 90 degrees and then smear across. So
0: you're making a cross almost with your slides.
1: Yeah, almost like a cross, exactly. It is just a matter of not putting any downward pressure on that because like Gerardo said they do tend to stick together and then it's almost just a matter of trying to keep them as parallel as possible and pulling them apart no pressure down whatsoever in terms of before I send this away I'll usually pick one or two of the what looks like more cellular slides and you can usually see that you've got stuff Mm -hmm. on the slide even before you stain it right and I'll usually pick one of the spreaders, which maybe has a bit less material on it, and one of the good slides, and I'll diff-quick those. And once you've diff-quicked it, you will also already, you'll probably know before you even look at it under the microscope, they're purple. Mm. Like your your cells will come up a really deep purple or blue because there's a lot of nuclear material there, there's a lot of lymphocytes. But all you need to be looking for is are these intact you don't need to be diagnosing lymphoma yourself, but you just need to make sure that you've got intact cells before you send that to the lab.
2: So you said you pick one slide and one of the spreader slides. Does the spreader slide that's on like on a perpendicular, that actually collects cells as well somewhere? It
1: does, or? yeah. Usually just right along the edge.
2: Oh, wow. That's what um, I, I normally do that because
0: I don't want to waste my good slides.
1: Exactly, on my cells. Yeah.
0: So then I just <laughs> look to see, how, yeah, I've got some cells. And that, that's for any FNA. It's a nice little Yeah. Thing. That was so useful. That Absolutely really was good. useful. I've again I've I've ever you know, I rate myself as being pretty good at this. And and ironically, this one even after you said to me, so Penny's response to me was pretty much all of this. And as always I looked under the microscope and I went, Yeah, there were some ruptured cells, but I could see some that looked like lymphoma cells, I was like, I'll send those off and I, I got a highly likely lymphoma diagnosis off that, but then they said there's too much damage to do the special staining on that. So yeah. and why? Now, first of all, what talk about the special staining? I always in my head you have to do biopsies then for further staining to differentiate T from B.
1: Yeah, so not anymore we now have the ability to do it's called immunophenotyping so finding out whether it's B or T we now can do that on cytology and the reason that we need the cells to be intact is because we're actually looking at cell markers on the cell membrane so not on the nucleus so you need to have whole cells in order to get this stain to stick. Essentially the pathologists are going to be applying some stains that are sort of an antibody-based stain where they'll stick to certain receptors and not stick to others. We can do that now on cytology, which is great because that means that if you get your cytology samples and they say, even I've seen it a lot, it says probable lymphoma or yeah. likely lymphoma. Yeah. As soon as you see the word lymphoma, you know that... like yeah. you pretty sure they can usually do that as an add-on test with the sample that they've already got and this is another reason why it's good to give them quite a few samples because they need a couple of extra slides in order to do this test because it's a different stain the test can look quite spectacular if you're actually getting the pictures of it if they're all b when on the b stain they'll come up as brown if they're all t they'll come up on the t stain as all brown and then they'll be sort of almost like blank in the other so that's how you know like hey this is a B cell lymphoma or this is a T cell lymphoma. Yes, you can still do it on histopathology. Absolutely. But the other test that we can use now in order to tell B versus T is something called flow cytometry, which is kind of like the, just the immunocytochemistry, but next level because it gives us a whole variety of other markers that we can look at on those cells too.
0: So what do you need for that?
1: Two things. So you can do flow cytometry on whole EDTA blood. So that's useful when you've got a patient who you suspect has a leukemia. So they've got a really high circulating lymphocyte count or you get one of those CBCs back from your pathologist and they've said there's a large population of other cells like they can't tell you whether they're lymphocytes or what. Um, So you can do flow cytometry just on whole EDTA blood, which is great because it's just taking a blood sample from a patient. But the other thing that you can do is you can do flow cytometry on tissue samples. So that could be from FNAs from a lymph node or multiple lymph nodes, or the scenario that I most commonly use it in is fine needle aspirates from a mass in the cranial mediastinum. So we're trying to differentiate cranial mediastinal lymphoma from a thymoma because on cytology alone, that can actually be really difficult um, and sometimes impossible, and your pathologist may not actually be able to do that for you. So flow cytometry for those samples can help you to differentiate. All you're doing for that is the same as you would for an FNA. But you are, instead of expelling cells onto a glass slide, you're expelling cells into a um, solution of saline and serum to try and keep these cells alive in suspension to get them to the lab. If you want to do a test like this, Call and speak to your local lab because there is only a couple, maybe one, I could be wrong, there might be more now who do it in Australia and they do have some really clear submission guidelines because these cells have to be alive for the test to be run. So you've got to get the sample to the lab pretty quickly. But if that's something that your pathologist has written, like, you know, we could do flow cytometry or they have the means to get it to the place that can, then definitely talk to them about how exactly do you get them those samples.
2: Oh, that's kind of cool because I, on the weekend, I diagnosed my own mother's dog with a seven by eight centimeter modeled cranial metastinal mass, and it was kind of like it's a lymphoma, is it thymoma? Mm-hmm. And it's like, man, we do core tissue biopsy next and stuff, and I'm like, you know, we're still consuming the whole process, but. That's interesting to hear about the flow cytometry, I Might Go find out.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely have a chat. I'm pretty sure, well, in New South Wales, I'll use vetnostics. I would assume that any other lab that uses them should be able to do it for you. Um, it is just a matter of getting the sample to the lab pretty quickly because you've got about a 24, 48-hour window before these cells die.
0: Yeah, sure. Just a quick interruption here. I checked with the guys at Vetnostics, which is part of the SVS pathology network that we mentioned at the start of this episode, so VetPath, ASAP Laboratory and QML Vetnostics to fact check Penny and they've confirmed that yes, they can indeed do all of these tests and yes, the flow cytometry and immunocytochemistry that Penny mentions here are indeed exclusive tests only available at their labs in Australia. I will put some links in the show description as well as in the show notes that will take you to the sample submission guidelines and some additional information about the testing if you want to dig into it a little bit more. It's really quite interesting. Penny talks about how important it is to get these samples to the lab fast, which is not a problem for our Australian listeners because the SVS Pathology Network has the largest network of couriers in Australia. We'll make sure that your samples get back to them faster than you can assemble an e-collar and put it on a boisterous Labrador pup without the help of your nurse. Okay. Back to Penny, and you said you want to collect that pre-treatment as well. Yes. So when would you do that? If you have a lymphoma case, you're going to FNA it at the first visit, as you say. That's an easy thing to do. You want to get all your samples. Do you wait and see what the results say before you talk about flow cytometry, or uh,
1: yeah, or it's is it not something you're going that to jump too straight up okay. for a dog that I suspect just has lymphoma. Okay. But certainly it is something that you could do instead of just submitting straight cytology and then getting the immunocytochemistry done on top. Absolutely, you okay. could you could do that. Um, but it's not usually my go-to for diagnosing just a, a normal lymphoma patient. For a dog with a cranial mediastinal mass, yes, that will be the first test that I will do because you do also submit some cytology slides with it as well.
2: Hmm. <laughs> What would be your white cell number that kind of gets you concerned that there's a leukemia going on there, like above 40 or something, or well, I suppose it depends on the type of cell
1: if it's on. It does. And it also depends on your patient mm. because so the highest ever circulating lymphocyte count I have seen in a patient was in a 10 year old fox terrier that had gone into his vet for a dental and they did some pre-anesthetic blood work. And his, and so he was completely fine. All he needed was his teeth cleaned. And his circulating lymphocyte count was 750,000.
2: The highest I've seen was like 130 or something. No. What's the, like the Buffy coat must have been... So big. So big. Did he have... A, oh, holy shit. But
1: <laughs> clinically, this patient was so well. So this okay. came as such a shock to his owners to be like, hang on, is this even right? Like, let's just, oh, let's just get an, and, and it was, it was right. So that was a patient with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which is definitely a more indolent type of leukemia where we do see really high cell counts and really well patients. So like this, the, the number doesn't always correlate with how sick the patient is. On the flip side of that, if you have a patient with an acute leukemia, Or you have a stage five lymphoma patient, their circulating lymphocyte count might only be something like 15 or 20. And they can be really, really sick. Mm. But those cells are going to be a completely different type of lymphocyte to that dog that had the 750,000. So those dogs with that really sort of mild, I call mild lymphocytosis, definitely flow cytometry could be very valuable for, for those patients to try and figure out, "Hey, are we looking at something really terrible, or is this actually something that is quite treatable and quite livable?" Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, it's definitely worthwhile to sort of match that to your patient.: Sure. yeah. I think the important thing to maybe bring up in regards to patients with lymphoma is prognosis in regards to their stage. So when we have a cancer diagnosis, for most things you are going to be assigned a stage, like how bad is this? How far has this gone? The difficulty with lymphoma though, is because it's a cancer of white blood cells. It's a systemic disease usually. Mm. So even though we might only find it in specific anatomic sites, the assumption is that it can be everywhere, and it often is. But at least within canine lymphoma, there are um, five stages, sort of you know one through five. There's no prognostic difference between a dog with stage three. And what stage three means is that you can feel peripheral lymph nodes on both sides of the diaphragm are enlarged. Stage four is you've got evidence of liver and spleen involvement. So you might ultrasound a dog and see like all this looks, you know, mottled, that whole sort of like Swiss cheese appearance of your spleen. Or you might have a patient with some degree of liver dysfunction and you look at their liver and it looks really dark and icky. And then stage five means you're finding it outside of those normal lymph- like lymphocenters. So you're finding it maybe in the peripheral blood. So you've got a leukemia associated with that or you're finding it in weird places like the eye or the CNS or just somewhere else weird. But there's actually no difference in prognosis for your patient who is classified as a stage three versus your patient who is classified as a stage five. What is much more important is their substage and substage is the a and b thing a is you're a well patient and sick and b is you're a sick patient so if you are a substage b patient regardless of whether you're a 3 or a 4 or a 5 whatever your prognosis isn't going to be as good if you're sick when you're diagnosed so that's probably the more important part of it so you can have a really well dog rock on in with big lymph nodes you take your cbc and you see oh goodness there's a lymphocytosis there too but the dog's fine that lymphocytosis and calling it a stage five isn't terrible news. And I think that can be hard for a lot of owners as well to grapple because they hear stage five and they think, oh God, it's all over. Like there's no hope, which certainly isn't the case.
0: So the prognosis for the ones that are sick, is that is there a difference in the type of cancer or is it just that they are halfway, halfway dead and you have less time to get them back from
1: it? Yeah, so it may be that they're sort of more along in terms of progressed. They've had this for longer, but it just hasn't been noticeable. Mm. They're now starting to show systemic effects of that. The other thing I suppose that we can't always discount for is when we have a patient present to us that is sick it does make it harder for us to treat them. I know we've talked about chemotherapy before and, you know, the risk of side effects being low, but it's not zero. And it can be really hard for a patient who's already not eating, vomiting, has diarrhea, like, the risk that we have if we give them chemo, yes, we're treating their cancer to make them feel better, but we could also make them feel a lot worse. Yeah, okay. So there can be difficulties there when you have a sick lymphoma patient on like what can we give you to try and make you feel better so that we can give you chemo. And that's where Pred, right back to your initial question, that's where Pred comes in because usually that does help.
2: Yeah, okay, Cool. Mm. That's really useful. Actually, I may miss this. Anything difference between one and three? Like
1: not a whole lot. It's all got to do with one is like one lymph node okay. on one side of the diaphragm two is more than one lymph node, but it's all on the same side of the diaphragm. Like you might be mandibular and pre-scap and then three is both sides. Definitely your prognosis can be better if you're classified as a stage one or two, but then there's no difference between three to five.
0: Okay. Yeah. Cool. So you you gave that example earlier of the dog that was picked up on pre-GA bloods. What about other things on blood? So if you're running bloods, I know calcium is a a common concern for cancers. Mm -hmm. Is that always the case? How reliable is it? And are there any other things that could give you clues that you should go looking for trouble?
1: Yeah. So definitely hypercalcemia is something that we do commonly associate with cancer. Yes, there can be a variety of other non-cancerous reasons, but... In terms of the most common cancers associated with hypercalcemia, lymphoma is probably the most common. But for dogs that are hypercalcemic, they are usually the dogs with T-cell lymphoma. So if we look at lymphoma in general, you know, B versus T, B-cell lymphoma is far more common in dogs. About 70% of them will have B-cell lymphoma. They can be hypercalcemic, but that doesn't happen often. Whereas the dogs who present with hypercalcemia and big lymph nodes, they're much more likely to be T cell. The other common cancer associated with hypercalcemia is anal sac adenocarcinoma. So if you have a hypercalcemic patient that doesn't have big lymph nodes, you definitely need to be doing a rectal exam, which I suppose we all should be doing every time we see a patient anyway. But the hypercalcemic patients can be tricky too because they're often also the sick ones. They're the ones that come in with some degree of renal dysfunction because of their hypercalcemia. So we need to be supporting them and treating them for that too, as well as hopefully treating the underlying disease, which might end up being lymphoma.
2: I'm a bit of a Nazi when it comes to hypercalcemia. Ionized, I'm talking about here, um, mm. because we have this on a blood gas machine. I think the top end's like 1.52 if it's mm-hmm. 1.56 i'm like okay because my my take is that it's pretty kind of strictly controlled yeah um and i've i've diagnosed dogs with mediastinal masses and things and and abdominal masses with hypercalcemia but like i'm a pre- like that's how nuts i am about the hypercalcemia is 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 that overzealous with the hypercalcemia or or is is, is-
1: i don't think so like it's it's you know it's it makes you look pretty good, hey. When you've done the blood test on a dog and you've seen something, you'd be like, now we need to do an X-ray of its chest because there will be a mass there. And they're like, how mm-hmm. do you even know that? <laughs> but when you're right, you're like, yep, this is this is why
2: mm-hmm. I
1: recommended doing those tests. Mm-hmm. But no, I think any any patient that's hypercalcemic, we certainly need to try and figure out why because if it's cancer, we need to probably do something about that.
0: Charlotte, mm-hmm. just just clarify, you said. Sort of as, as an afterthought, that ionized calcium. Uh, why the difference between ionized... So what are we reading for not on the blood gas analysis? If we on a normal in-house lab machine, what calcium is that checking for and why Why does that matter?
2: I always find that it comes up earlier or shows up earlier a bit more sensitive with the ionized. So the times when I've picked it up really early or earlier is normal biochem, the total calcium is normal on the biochem, but then the ionized high. And that so, on, does the blood gas
0: analysis... And, Blood gas machine check for ionized calcium, not total calcium. Most
2: most um, blood gas machines, which do acid base and you know blood gas analysis, will will have ionized. Um, mm-hmm. But ionized won't be on your primary machine in house. Okay. You have to send it out okay. I know that. But what's what's your take on that, Penny? Ionized versus your biochem cal- calcium.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with you that if you're waiting for your patient's total calcium to get high, you're going to be waiting a lot longer to see that. So you may see some far more subtle elevations on an ionised calcium. The hard part is like... How often are we going to, are we going to be routinely doing that for all of our patients? Like maybe not because it is like like an additional test, like you said, but certainly if you've got a total calcium that's high, you definitely need to confirm that with an ionized calcium, but also your ionized calcium is probably going to be really high by that point.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll, um, read your acid base and blood gas panels for like every single- Almost everything. Everything yeah. that comes from the door because they're sick. So we you know, we pick it up in much earlier in the screening process. But yeah. in general practice, I wouldn't have done an ionized calcium at all. No, never. Yeah. Same. yeah. Never.
0: Wow. I've learned so much already. Um, where to <laughs> next? So are, any other biochem markers or is calcium the main thing? Anything else that you should look out for?
1: So on biochem, you can also see some degree of um, hepatic dysfunction as well. And certainly you can see that when you've got infiltration of lymphoma into the liver, stage four um, lymphoma patients have liver and spleen infiltration. And sometimes you can have such a large degree of disease there that your liver isn't functioning properly. So you might see elevations in your ALT, you might see changes to your bilirubin. And I think those two markers specifically are really important to me but also everyone in terms of what chemo drugs are actually going to be safe to give this patient if you do end up diagnosing it with lymphoma because there are a lot of chemotherapy drugs that do need to be metabolized through the liver and if you've got problems with biliary excretion for example I'd be very hesitant to give that patient um, fincristine because we need that to be functioning properly in order to safely give that drug. So I think those routine CBC biochemistry tests are really helpful to just check that everything's still okay. But sometimes those results can influence what drugs we feel are going to be safe to give that patient in the initial um, stages of treating its disease.
0: Okay, that, that begs the next question To So let's say you've diagnosed or have a suspect or highly suspicious lymphoma case and you want to get an idea about how staging it so you want to so you, you obviously do fnas of all the lymph nodes you're going kind to of yeah. do full biochem and bloods and ultrasound to look at liver and spleen and see what's happening internally um, are you doing chest rads as well or what includes your, your full workup for these guys
1: so you definitely can be doing all those things. Like, you definitely can be doing ultrasounds and chest radiographs. And I feel like for those dogs that are hypercalcemic, you're probably going to do a chest radiograph to look and see what's going on in the cranial mediastinum. Is there a mass there? Is there not? But kind of going back to what I said before, mm. there's no real prognostic difference okay. for yep. your patient, yep. Yep. whether you do find that or whether you don't. Okay. So, although it is really nice to have chest radiographs, abdominal ultrasound as part of your staging. And definitely that is what we would deem as being complete staging, Mm. because the other thing is you might find other things. Mm. You might find other abnormalities not related to the lymphoma. Mm. Um, You don't actually have to do those things because it's not necessarily going to change how you treat the patient or what their prognosis is. So, When I have patients referred to see me who have been diagnosed with lymphoma based off an FNA or a biopsy or anything like that, I will talk to people about, you know, yes, we can do these tests to get more information, but we treat this as a systemic disease. We assume this could be and often is everywhere. And if it's not going to change our prognosis and if it's not going to change how we treat like what drugs we pick and stuff like that, then we don't have to do those tests.
2: Okay. What about T versus B? Mm -hmm. Which is the better one? You know, if I was going to pick one, which one would I want?
1: (laughs) Uh, If you had to pick, if you're a dog, (laughs) if you had to pick a type of lymphoma, and let's just be clear, this is for our typical multicentric intermediate to large size because that's the most common diagnosis that we get like high grade or large cell multicentric lymph node lymphoma in a dog you probably want b there was that sort of saying b is bad and t is terrible (laughs) i do treat them differently so i will use different drugs for a dog that has T-cell lymphoma versus a dog that has B-cell lymphoma. And that's fine. There are also oncologists who do not do that. There are also oncologists who treat them all with the same drugs. Fine. Uh, It's it's also as much as an art as it is a science sometimes. So B-cell lymphoma is the more common. About 70% of dogs will be diagnosed with lymphoma will end up having B. It is seen as the better type of lymphoma to have and that comes from the idea that treated with multi-agent chemotherapy average remission times are around 12 months we recognize that averages mean that 50 percent can do better than that and 50 percent don't do as well but about 90 percent of dogs who are diagnosed with b-cell lymphoma will go into remission which is a really high rate T-cell lymphoma, we see that in just under 30% of dogs with multicentric lymphoma. Quite commonly, they are the dogs that are sicker when they're diagnosed, and that may be because of the hypercalcemia, it may be because they've got a cranial mediastinal mass that's effusive, like there are a number of reasons why that could be the case. We see still a quite high remission rate, so like 80 to 90% chance of going into remission with chemotherapy. But... The remission times are not usually as long. So I treat them differently, different drugs. I will quote people, 90% chance of remission. And on average, that would be about 10 months.
0: So it's not dramatically worse.
1: It's not dramatically worse. Within both B and T cell, we recognize that about 20 to 25% of patients will still be alive at two years. Well, so you've got, let's say, a one in four chance of still being here at two years if you're treated with multi-agent chemotherapy. And so that that's T-cell
0: that's as well, you said. Yes. Okay. All right. So it's not such a big difference, really. No. In terms of- <laughs> it
2: makes me reconsider my mom's dog. She's like, you know, I don't really know if I want to do this. Mm-hmm. Because we actually haven't, you know, differentiate between thymoma and lymphoma. But then, yeah. like, these kind of numbers, you know, kind of make me think, you know, it might be worth a go.
1: The other thing I suppose is it is important to know between the two of them because a thymoma is a surgical or a radiation disease and you can be fixed with that. Like if you can cut it out, you, you can be done, which is great. Mm. Uh, thymoma doesn't respond to chemotherapy really much at all, mm. whereas lymphoma is absolutely not a disease I would be mm. recommending surgery for. Mm. Um, that. No, that would be terrible, but certainly could respond to radiation too. But before you go down the path of radiation therapy, you kind of want to know what you're treating. But yeah, like even if it is T-cell lymphoma, you've got a pretty high chance of responding positively to chemotherapy, going into remission and still being around for, you know, average is 10 months, but there's a one in four chance of two years, which is pretty good, I think.
0: That's really cool. Is there anything we're
2: missing and are we are we, are we covered it i feel like i've learned a hell of a lot i have a random question about anal sac carcinomas okay. like <laughs> so, but like okay like they should be big or is like okay my god this this anal gland is like the size of a pea yeah is, this is, is is that abnormal i can't express it it's the size of a pea the other one i express and it's empty like is that enough
1: Yeah, for sure. The problem with anal sac tumors is that you can have a really tiny primary tumor and horrible metastatic disease, whereas you could have a a really big, you know, like tennis ball sized tumor and find that it hadn't spread. But also that tiny, tiny five millimeter pea sized tumor could absolutely be enough to make your patient hypercalcemic. So I think that if ever you find an abnormality when you're doing a rectal on a dog or expressing anal glands and it just doesn't feel right, I'd be flagging that for follow-up. And, you know, it is possible to FNA them fairly simply. You will often get a cytology result back that will say something along the lines of epithelial neoplasia. And on cytology, these don't look that aggressive, but we know that they absolutely can be. Yeah. Yeah.
0: If that's all of it, I will just add one more thing. Again, mm-hmm. it goes back to this one case, and that's something I've learned since chatting to you, Penny. It's yeah. just the approach to it. So that case I saw, as I said, 13-year-old Goldie. Yeah. Uh, until we had started having these conversations in in an emergency clinic as I was, to me that would have been, pff, you know, I, I'd, I'd assume the, the owner's not going to go any further with this. Let's maybe talk about palliative care, and then let's talk about euthanasia.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then after your conversation of your perspective that sometimes people are happy with an extra three months or a extra year or so, and and I gathered as the consultation went on, this was a really really valued pet. They had kids, but this was the the firstborn, uh, yeah. and it was a it was a, and sometimes this makes a difference. But it was a middle aged man, sort of my age, which again I I assume that it's a no. Middle aged man yeah. go, nah, it's thirteen. It's got cancer. No ways. <laughs> But I stopped my first instinct and I would said, these are the options. This is, there's chemo and that can extend life and give a good quality of life. Just the stuff that you've he, that been teaching us. And mm-hmm. he considered it. I, I think in the end he did euthanize it after a week or so. I think she didn't really do heaps better on the breads, and I think they made peace with it. But just me not jumping to that decision for him. Because previously I think I would have managed to easily push him into a euthanasia. Because in mm. my head that would have been the right thing, but no, it was just just keeping the door open and saying these are all the options, and not just jumping to it's just you know there's no ways really helped, and I was I was pleasantly surprised. He went okay, I'll go home and talk to my wife and think about it. We'd love to have her around a little bit longer if we can. So I think it's really really a valuable thing.
1: Yeah, I think even just for some people going away and thinking about it even for a day or two can be really helpful yeah. because. Maybe, you know, like they probably turned up to the emergency clinic not thinking that Zero. that was going to no, be. No, he was shocked. He was, like was going to s- give them. Like I
0: said, I, I, I tried to stall telling him what I found. I literally went, to cuddle the dog and I went, oh, fuck.
1: This is yeah.
0: Bad. And I didn't want to tell him, so I did my full exam. And in the end, I went, well, my major concern is these big lymph nodes, which normally, as soon as I said cancer, his, mm. uh, his, his ears. His ears his ears started watering. His eyes started watering. <laughs> he got all teary. And I was like, oh no, I've broken his heart. But it was nice to be able to give that other option. It's really, it's really yeah. valuable. Yeah.
1: I think the only other thing that I just wanted to talk about, and it's applicable for dogs and for cats, but it's got to do with pathology. And what, like the information that your pathologist can give you that is going to be really helpful to you to be able to talk to owners about is this, A good type of lymphoma or is this a bad type of lymphoma? And what I mean by that is essentially under the umbrella of lymphoma, the first two sort of big categories are intermediate or large cell, which in dogs is the most common type that we see, or there is small cell lymphoma. And small cell lymphoma is very much like what we see in a lot of cats with like low grade elementary lymphoma. And it's got to do purely with the size of these cells. Small cell lymphoma does happen in dogs too. And for a dog who's diagnosed with small cell lymphoma, that could be in the gastrointestinal tract, that could be in the spleen, that could be in a lymph node. If those lymphocytes are described as being small by your pathologist, then this may actually be a far more indolent and less aggressive disease than when those lymphocytes are described as being intermediate to large. And I think it goes the same for in cats as well. If your pathologist is saying this is small cell lymphoma, that's generally a good sign and they can do a lot better than an animal that ends up being diagnosed with large cell lymphoma. So just when you get those pathology reports and you immediately scan down to the thing that says diagnosis and it says lymphoma, just make sure that you go back into that description to see like what the pathologist said about the size, because that may be really helpful to you to have a conversation with the owners from there, even before you've done B versus T and all that kind of stuff.
2: Great stuff. I did not know that. All right. Great. Oh, actually. Well, any difference between like pred only? Like what's what's oh, yeah. remission? Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. So if we have clients and a patient who have decided that chemotherapy is not something that they feel is appropriate or that they are able to do for their pet, which is fine. The minimum that I would be doing is putting this patient on alone. We know that it can have an anti-cancer effect. So it can shrink lymph nodes, not all the way down to remission, but by quite a lot in Mm. some patients, which is great, but it can also have some really nice side effects, which we love. So it does act as a little bit of an anti-nausea medication. It increases their appetite, increases their drinking, generally just makes them feel a a bit better. But for animals with lymphoma, that's usually only for a relatively short period of time. So average period of time that they're feeling good just on palliative prednisolone is somewhere between six to 12 weeks definitely i've had patients who have done a lot better than that and that's always wonderful but yeah six to 12 weeks is definitely the average and then you start to see the lymph nodes will start to get big again they'll start to feel unwell and at that point they will probably be put to sleep
2: awesome yep. Um, yep. Wrap it up. Um, yeah let's wrap that up that was great
0: thanks again penny yeah. these are so informative i love them
2: before you're underweight we
0: have a few more tickets left for our live event on 22 to 25 November in NUSA, which is getting really close, so jump on it. We finalized the clinical program for the two clinical days with Professor Jill Madison and Prof. David Church, and it's a little bit epic. We're talking to Prof. Jill about better clinical reasoning, and we're doing clinical conundrums, which are case studies that we'll use to build on the content that she teaches. And Prof. David, of course, is covering everything in a chronology, from the highs and lows of cortisol to better ways of thinking about and managing your tricky diabetics. But it's not just going to be lectures. We're doing questions and cases and discussions and, of course, some podcasting. Come just for the two clinical days. or we'll come for the full four-day event and all of the associated adventures in the best location in Australia. The link for the event is in the show description and remember to use VV Listener, all caps, at checkout for a $300 discount on your tickets. We'll hope to see you there. Okay, bye.